Can you imagine that? It doesn't compute, does it? That doesn't even begin to register that that could happen. And yet that's what did happen. One man at the word of the Lord and he went to a city far away from God and spoke God's words and they turned to him. I think we find it hard enough to believe that, that we could be kind of overwhelmed by, by hundreds or even tens of people here coming to faith in Jesus let alone tens of thousands of people. And we could begin to think, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. Because I know that with God all things are possible. But do we really believe it could happen? We kind of consign it to, to something that happened then. But then you look, 1904 in, well not in this country, in Wales, but in the United Kingdom, in 1904, 100,000 men and women and children, in this very short space of time, turned to the Lord because God was at work in Wales happened again in, in, in the States in 1906 it happens again and again and again through history we're seeing revivals take place in Africa in Asia huge movements of God's spirit and God's power turning people to himself I can't begin to pretend to understand how that happens. And it's certainly not my intention this morning to say, well, if we do this and we do this and we do this and we do this, there's a formula. And when we obey the formula, God will work. Because actually God will do what God will do. But that doesn't mean to say that there's nothing for us to learn here about how we can be people that God can use. Whether that's to allow God to use us to bring tens or hundreds or thousands of people to know Jesus, or whether it's about bringing one person one step closer, that's just as much of a miracle. But wouldn't it be great if we saw hundreds and thousands of people coming to know the Lord Jesus. It's really interesting that Jesus, in Luke chapter 11, keep your finger in, in, uh, in Jonah for a minute, because it's a hard book to find once you've gone away from it. Keep your finger in, in, in Jonah, and just look with me at uh, Luke chapter 11 for a second. Jesus picks up on these incredible events and wants us to learn something 
from them. In Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to, to 32... Luke eleven twenty nine. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, who turned to God through Solomon, the Queen of the South will arise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, one greater than Solomon is here, Jesus. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus uses Jonah in so many different ways. But he's making a point to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, to the religiously comfortable, to say, if you're not careful, people that you think are not worthy, will stand at the judgment and judge you because you do not respond to my word. And so it would be good that we look at what goes on in this, in this amazing revival to see what we can learn from this text about our response to the living God. Seems there are four things that we can take from, from this text to learn from this text and from the people of Nineveh. The first of them is this that there's a conviction of sin in this incident. Secondly, that there's a sorrow for sin. Thirdly, that there is changed behaviour. And fourthly, that there is a living hope expressed and lived out I just want to briefly look at each of those four things the end of verse 4 Jonah brings what is a pretty succinct message 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned we don't know whether that was the extent of his message or whether there was more to it but that was the key but whatever he said in addition to these words if there was more the people of Nineveh verse 5 believed God I wish I could do that meerkat thing simples <laughs> but that's it the people of Nineveh believed God full stop what, what was it that they believed well, I think it was that God was so angry with their sinfulness their wickedness 
that he sent Jonah to say, you are about to be destroyed because of your wickedness. They heard a man of God with a message from God that communicated God's might and authority and majesty and communicated God's wrath and anger in the face of sin which a holy God cannot put up with. They believed that in the presence of God's holiness they could not kid themselves that their sin did not matter. They could not kid themselves that their sin did not matter. They couldn't justify their sin anymore. They couldn't say, well, yeah, but it's like that because they could not kid themselves anymore that their sin did not matter. How often, how often do we kid ourselves that that little thing there, that sin, doesn't really matter. It's not a big thing. I'm basically a good Christian person, or I'm just a good person. And so that little thing, well, God's not going to be too worried about that. And, and he'll understand. The Ninevites believed God. They could not kid themselves that God would turn a blind eye. Think about that song that we sometimes sing. Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who would stand? Rightly, we go on to the next line. Thanks to your blood, we are cleansed. Thanks to your grace, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Now we are forgiven. But how often do we pause? And think about the fact that without Jesus, without repentance, our sins would put us in the path of a God whose wrath against sin is unbearable. The Ninevites believed God. It's not terribly fashionable to think of the fear of God. But Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a real danger that we domesticate God. It's a lovely scene in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's the line, The Witch and the Wardrobe where um, Susan and Lucy, the two children, who find themselves in Narnia, and they're with Mr. Beaver, and they encounter Aslan the lion. In the course of that conversation, Susan says to Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? 
And Mr. Beaver, in no uncertain terms, says no. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. There's an amazing picture of Jesus in in the lion. In that piece of fiction. We wouldn't even begin to think about domesticating a lion. But actually sometimes we try to just make God fit into our sphere of understanding. And kid ourselves that there are things that don't really matter. In the face of a fearsome God, the Ninevites believed and were convicted of their sin. And so the second thing comes. They showed sorrow for their sins. Having been convicted of their sins, they showed sorrow for their sins. In that same verse, but also further on in response to the king. Verse 5, second bit of it. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The king, when he hears exactly the same thing, rises from his throne, takes off his royal robes, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits down in the dust. For a king to do that would have been disgraceful. But it was also a culturally understood way of saying, I am sorry. I can't quite get my head around how how they kind of cover the beasts of the field in sackcloth and how they don't let them eat or drink. But I think that, that the picture there is that this is serious. Normal life needs to stop while we recognise our sorrow for our sin and we'll show it. And it wasn't about putting on a show. It wasn't about, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm super sorry. But it was from the heart saying, I am sorry. I don't know for us, we're not given to wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on our head. But maybe for us, it's about doing something that's not very customary, getting on our knees. Maybe that needs to be tonight before you go to bed or when you get home from church this morning that you fall on your knees. But please, if you need to fall on your knees in this place, you are amongst friends, you are amongst brothers and sisters. Fall on your knees, for goodness sake, if that's what you need to do and say, I am sorry, Lord. We need to figure out how we express sorrow for our sin and unreservedly without justification for anything we come before God and say 
sorry. So we see conviction of sin. We see sorrow for sin committed. Then the third thing we see is changed behaviour. See that in two places. First in the instruction from the king in verse 8. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The king recognises the evil and the violence of the place over which he rules. And he issues by decree, let's stop it. And that's a bit of a big deal. Can't be a bit of a big deal. That is a big deal. That a king would recognise that. But actually the bigger deal comes in verse 10. Where God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. And he had compassion. See, each of us, every single one of us here in this room has a personal responsibility to change our behaviour in the light of conviction of sin. No point in saying, oh yeah, I repent of that, and then just going straight out the door and getting back on with it. Doing the same thing that we've been doing before. And, and I hear this, saying, yes, but God's a God of grace. As if to say, it's all right, I can carry on sinning. Paul deals with that in his letters to the young Christians. Does grace mean that I go on sinning? By no means. Yes, we have grace. Hallelujah. But we need to deal with our sinful behaviour where it happens. And we need to ask God's help. Because I can't do it on my own. Just like Paul, who says, just the very thing that I don't want to do, I go on and I do it. So we need the help of God to change our lives, to turn our lives around, to follow in the way that honours him. And where we can put things right where we've done stuff and and actually by our actions we can undo them, then we do what we can to put it right. Put right relationships. Put right situations at work, at home, in the neighbourhood. Use that incredibly powerful word, sorry, to others. I think I've been clear but let's be absolutely clear this is not about earning favour with God it's not about being good so that God will love us it's about responding to God's grace 
It's about recognising his generosity towards us. It would be weird, wouldn't it, if Angela bought me a present, had wrapped it up beautifully and came and gave it to me. And I took it and said, thanks, love, and walked off. She'd be hurt. It's not that she's giving me a present for me to, to, to love her more, but as she gives me the present, I guess she would expect that I would open it. And I would say, love, that is fantastic. Thank you. And we continue in relationship. We don't take God's grace and walk off with it and say, yeah, thanks, Lord. I'll get on my life now. But we respond to God's grace by changing the way that we behave, the way that we think, the way that we speak. And that's what happens with the people of Nineveh. And then the fourth thing, underpinning all the other three, within this passage is a living hope in God. We don't really know what knowledge of God the Ninevites had. Maybe none whatsoever before Jonah walked into their lives. But they encounter a living hope with a living God. A couple of indications I can see First one in Jonah's warning. The fact that God gives them a time scale 40 days before Nineveh is overturned suggests that there is a clock ticking within which time, if they respond, then God will spare them. That certainly seems to be the king's view. If you look in verse 9, having told the people to give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, he said. God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger. And so as Jonah speaks and presents the word of God, there is a living hope beginning to bubble away there. And of course, if they heard anything of Jonah's story in chapters 1 and 2 then they're going to be thinking, well, if God does that for Jonah, then maybe there's hope for me. They can see that God is a God of wrath, but also a God of mercy. And then we have the benefit, I guess, of scripture, of seeing God's dealings with humanity throughout history. Incidents like in Exodus 34, where God appears to Moses and says to Moses, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
we need to be careful that we don't ignore our sin and pass it on in our habits to our children and our grandchildren. But there you see God revealing himself and his character. And that's what he wants to do throughout history. And that's what he's done for us in Jesus. He's revealed who he is. Almighty, immortal, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing, yet loving, faithful, true. God has revealed himself. And we have the benefit of knowing that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Evan Roberts. Sounds like a good Welsh name to me. Evan Roberts. He was one of the guys that was at the heart of the 1904 Welsh Revival. He called people to do four things, very simple things. He called people to confess their sin and put wrongs right, number one. Kind of two, isn't it? But confess their sin and put wrongs right. Put away doubtful habits, number two. Obey the Spirit promptly, number three. And number four, confess your faith publicly. Those seem to me to echo what happened in Nineveh. What happened to the Ninevites who believed God. We're not about trying to manufacture something but we are about being true to God's word and responding to God's word with integrity to honour him and be salt and light in this world. Let's take some time just now. Let's just be quiet before God to acknowledge our own sinfulness confess it, to ask God to, to help us to see what he sees and confess our sins to almighty God. Maybe in the quiet God will prompt you to put something right and I would urge you as Evan Roberts did to obey the spirit promptly do what comes to mind to put something right that we might honour God that we might be people who can be used by God for his glory that is an exciting adventurous thing to do it's the thing that we were created to do.
but our heads can so easily be turned from what God has for us.